This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter. Father Dan is the director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's. College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Heidi, how was your Thanksgiving and how are you doing? Thanks, David. It was lovely. It was really great to take some time off work. We traveled to Wisconsin and saw some family, did a little hiking, very careful to wear our blaze orange vests so we did not get accidentally shot by deer hunters while hiking out in the woods there. I had celebrated by nothing day on the day after Thanksgiving. I don't know if anyone else honors that holiday by not partaking in the craziness that is Black Friday, but it was great. I'm very grateful for a lot of things this year. How about you guys? Yeah, so I was in upstate New York visiting my family. It was the first time in maybe a decade that I spent Thanksgiving with my biological family. The last two communities that I lived in, we re- pretty much regularly celebrated Thanksgiving as as a friary. And the, my local friary here in Chicago decided that this year for a, a various set of reasons would, would go out and, and celebrate this particular holiday with our families. And so that came as a surprise to me earlier in the semester, but it was a, a pleasant surprise to be able to spend some time with my family, especially because there was lots of family news that was announced. And I was there in real time for once to, to hear it, including the engagement of my brother and future sister-in-law, which was announced and exciting. And the announcement of one of my other siblings and his spouse that they're expecting uh, baby number four in the family. It, it, I was sharing with one of the friars this morning that that this was, it's, it's unusual for me to be there in real time. And I turned to my parents after each announcement. I said, did you know about this? And they said, no, we're learning about it now too. So that was a lot of fun. But it was uh, it was nice to be in in the Adirondacks. It was much colder and snowier than it is here in South Bend or in the south side of Chicago. And it gave me an appreciation when I landed back here in the Midwest that it felt like a heat wave, but not quite the heat wave that I had the week before Thanksgiving, which was spent in San Antonio, Texas for the AARSBL, the American Academy of Religion and Society of Biblical Literature conference, which ordinarily, you know, David and I have talked about on the program before is what we might call a mega conference. There's somewhere between eight and 9,000 scholars from around the world that usually gather. This year, reports were from the administration there that that was about half of the programming was really done virtually and, and half of the program was done in person. And so it had a very different vibe. The exhibit hall was very quiet. The kind of conference center areas in between sessions was much lighter and less overwhelming, which I, I really enjoyed. I'm not an introvert, but sometimes 9,000 people is a lot, like LA Congress. But it was really nice to meet up with some friends and colleagues and former professors who are mentors and friends and others and meet up with some of my publishers. And so all that was great. David, how's it been for you? What's going on? 
It's good. Coming out of the Thanksgiving holiday, my entire body is going, what's happening? Because I've I decompressed for about five days and have been working on things other than the normal routines of day-to-day life. And this morning was a little bit of a, <laughs> of a wrenching uh, return to that. I had a really good long weekend, uh, got a lot of work done on the book, and my daughter is working on a book of her own. She's 11 and she's been writing and she's got, it's about 5,000 words long, so it's nothing hugely ambitious, but for her, it's a story that has multiple parts and multiple characters, and one of my joys over the weekend was talking to her about story structure, because I think about that a lot, and she had reached a point where the characters had gotten split up and she wasn't sure where to go next, and so we talked about, and Daniel appreciate this, the Aristotelian unities, the notions of unity, of time, of place, of action, and we sort of talked about how she could use that as a kind of limiting structure to help get her back on track, and she seemed to run with that. So that was very enjoyable. My wife has a new job. She is going to be the director of communications for a statewide and I believe soon region-wide organization and I have known them and their work for a good number of years, and uh, I'm, I'm excited about that. I think she's going to really do well in this new position, and we're excited for that to happen in the next few weeks. And all things considered, I'm really looking forward to the winter break. Congratulations, Akira. That's great. Yeah, congratulations. Thank you. Speaking of new beginnings, yesterday was the beginning of the liturgical year with the first Sunday of Advent. So we started our Advent traditions here with our Advent wreath at home. We don't start the chocolate calendar or the Jesse tree that we also do until December 1st. But how are you guys marking Advent or how are you thinking about Advent this year? I know last year was so crazy for all of us being locked in with COVID. We've argued that it was okay to jump the gun on Christmas a little bit last year just to have something to look forward to. Are we returning to our regular Advent practices? Or I, I saw a lot of Christmas trees up over this weekend. You know, it's it's interesting. I celebrated the first, I, I was the presider at Mass here at the Loretto Community, the Mother Church of the Sisters of, of the Holy Cross yesterday morning. So I got back pretty late from New York on Saturday night, had uh, Mass with the community here at St. Mary's early yesterday morning, and then drove to uh, Hyde Park to be with the Friars for a meeting of, of the Friars and, and just some fraternity before coming back on Monday. So I, I think for me, the biggest thing is a, a sense of gratitude that we can at least intentionally slow down, whether we actually slow down is something different. Because I agree with you last year, it was such a such a difficult year. And Thanksgiving was really curtailed and Christmas was curtailed I, for the first time in a long time. I didn't go home for Christmas at, at any point during the break. And I, I think this year I'm trying to get back into it. I've been much more attentive, interestingly enough, to the cycle of light. I, and and I, I don't know, I'm, I'm still processing that and praying with that and thinking about that. As an early morning runner, I'm usually attuned to the incremental minutes by minutes that light increases or decreases throughout the year. But it's been striking me very differently this year, and I don't know what to make of that. Maybe it's because it's the first time I'm living most of the time on the furthest western part of the eastern time zone. And so mornings are much, much darker than uh, I'm used to when I've been on the most eastern part for the last several years of the central time zone. Anyways, I think about light a lot during the season of Advent, and uh, so that's what I'm incorporating right now. David, what, what about you? It's really interesting for you to say that about the light. I've mentioned a couple episodes along the way here that I've been we've we've had wonderful adventures in neurochemistry lately for me, and getting my neurochemistry balanced has been really a joy, but. What that has meant is that I'm experiencing right now this fall in a way that I never have before because I'm not kind of racked by anxiety. I'm not in a fog of depression. And so I have been experiencing both the kind of change of seasons and also the light, as you're talking about, in very stark ways. And I I realize that I'm being affected by things differently than I ever have before. And I've been trying to be very attentive to that as well and make sure that I'm getting outside enough and getting daylight hours enough. But that has factored into kind of how I'm thinking about Advent. I'm trying to use those times when I feel my interior darkness kind of creep back on me because it still comes. It's just not as acute as it used to be. I'm trying to use those as times to really lean into prayer and kind of higher power stuff. And so that's been an interesting sort of addition to my Advent and seasonal preparations is thinking about how 
I can be turning inward more consciously into prayer. And I haven't really been able to, I haven't done that in the past because it's never been a rhythm that I've felt that I've had access to. Well, and I'll just say that too. Well, it's interesting that we're both attentive to this. Maybe there's something going on a larger scale and uh, it, there's more to reflect on there and to discuss, I'm sure. But I'm also thinking about, Heidi, it sounds like your family has a lot of Advent-centric kind of traditions leading to Christmas. And and I'll just share one that I hold on to very preciously, which is not, because I'm not always very good with everything that's happening, especially as an academic, at the end of the academic year coincides with the beginning of Advent. So it's just a constant deluge of meetings and grading and tests and all this kind of stuff. But one of my most beloved times of year are during the O antiphons, the last week, effectively the last week of Advent. It begins on December 17th, and the O antiphons, for our listeners who may not recall or may not know, it's it's the antiphon, it's the little saying usually derived from Scripture that's prayed before, in this case, the Magnificat during evening prayer, so that hymn of Mary's praise. And so each of these antiphons come from the book of the prophet Isaiah, and our listeners will most be most familiar with it in the form of the Advent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. So those different, you know, Emmanuel is one, O Key of David, or Son of David, O Key, you know, O Radiant Light, these sorts of things come from those O antiphons, which is another reason why I don't usually get too uptight about you know, hymn choice during various liturgical seasons, but I am a stickler that, that O Come, O Come, Emmanuel shall not be sung until December 17th. It, it has no business in the first three weeks of Advent because those are the O antiphons being sung. So I like to hold that back. And, and that's something that, in addition to as the band Europe would sing the final countdown, it also is an invitation to reflect on the kind of the names of God and the way that Christ is Savior and the center of creation and that sort of thing. So I just wanted to share that. That's always been meaningful to me. Well, we sang it yesterday, so I think that's a losing fight there. It is. I've learned that. (laughs) But if it's up to me to choose the hymn, I'm not choosing it until the 17th. And O Come, O Wisdom from on High, my favorite antiphon. Just just to note that I, too, have been noticing the darkness, so I don't know. I mean, obviously, it's something we deal with every year, but I seem to be particularly attentive to it. I haven't been able to get as many of my daily walks in because I don't walk after dark. And I'm thinking of our Jewish brothers and sisters who are celebrating Hanukkah this week or starting this week. We're all lighting candles and maybe trying to shine a little light in in the darkness. So I'm glad we have one more episode so we can check in on our Advent journeys then. Maybe then we can start singing O Come, O Come, Emmanuel officially. (laughs) (laughs) Well, friends who are listening, as you are doing your own Advent preparations, we'd love to hear about what you've got going on in your own households and know always that you are in our prayers and we're grateful that you're along on this journey with us. Today on our show, we've got three topics coming up. We're going to be talking about the verdicts in the Kyle Rittenhouse and Ahmad Arbery cases that were just recently handed down. We're going to be talking about the recently wrapped up bishops meeting and what the implications are moving forward from their document on the Eucharist and and some other aspects of that. And we're going to be talking about the Omicron variant that has just made a surge around the world. So that's all coming up. Please stay with us. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. On the night of August 25th, 2020, a 17-year-old white man named Kyle Rittenhouse shot and killed two men and wounded a third with an assault rifle in Kenosha, Wisconsin. He later claimed to have crossed state borders to, quote, protect businesses and offer medical aid, unquote, even though he was not a trained or licensed medical professional. Charged with two counts of homicide, one count of attempted homicide, two counts of reckless endangerment, one count of unlawful possession of a firearm, and one count of curfew violation, his trial took place during the first three weeks of November. After four days of deliberation, the jury returned a not guilty verdict on all counts. Predictably, 
The response to this news was mixed, with some people celebrating the verdict and others expressing protest and frustration that a white teenager would, in effect, not be held to account after killing two people and injuring a third. Meanwhile, as the Rittenhouse trial was wrapping up, another murder trial was underway in Georgia for the killing of Ahmad Arbery, the 25-year-old unarmed black man who was fatally shot while out for a run. Travis McMichael, Gregory McMichael, and William Rody Bryan were charged at the state level with malice murder, felony murder, aggravated assault, false imprisonment, and criminal attempt to commit false imprisonment. They are still awaiting federal trial for charges related to a hate crime, attempted kidnapping, and using a firearm during a crime of violence. All three men were convicted of crimes. Travis McMichael was found guilty of his charges, while Gregory McMichael was found guilty of everything but malice murder, and Brian was found guilty of numerous crimes. Given the history of the American justice system in the United States, which has regularly sided with white defendants who claim self-defense in the killings of unarmed persons of color, the conviction of the McMichaelses and Brian was perceived by many observers as an exceptional instance of justice. Meanwhile, a white teenager in Wisconsin who killed two and injured one other white person was acquitted on the same defense strategy. Dan, what are the issues at play here? How are you thinking about these two trials and their verdicts? Yeah, there's a lot going on here. I would identify as somebody who is in the group that was very unhappy with the Rittenhouse uh, verdict. Yet I understand at the same time, the jury operated, as President Biden said in a statement, according to the system. And I think that raises questions about whether or not the laws in our respective states and jurisdictions and federal laws, for that matter, reflect the justice that we seek to embody and to and to promote in our communities. What I mean by that is the claim to self-defense is so broadly written that all one has to do is make a case that they felt somewhat reasonably, I guess, or convince a jury that they personally felt that they were uh, in danger either bodily or fatally. Now, here's the problem with that, of course, which is it's a phenomenological problem for the philosophers out there. How can somebody basically challenge an internal experience of something in the past? It's an unassailable sort of claim, and that raises lots of problems from the perspective of jurisprudence. At a more fundamental level, and we've seen this play out before, by the way, so this was the same kind of excuse used by George Zimmerman in Florida to justify the the killing of a 17-year-old, again, unarmed, in this case, black a teenager. And this is the same argument that was used by Rittenhouse's attorneys to justify his killing of two people and injuring a third. Where I have a real issue is what kind of system, what kind of society do we live in that would allow a 17-year-old kid to go and take an assault rifle into a place across state lines and kill two people with impunity? Now, I I think this is where the, the U.S. system has a range of kinds of murder that one can be responsible for, even on the lower level of unintentional manslaughter, when you think about or vehicular manslaughter, if you hit somebody with a car. But it's just, it really... I understand. I don't even want to have an argument about whether or not the jury was justified in following the the rule of the law. I think they were. I have I take issue with the law itself. So that's the first thing on the Rittenhouse case. I will say on, on when it comes to those who were charged and now who have been convicted of the murder of uh, Mr. Arbery, what we see here is an exception that kind of proves the rule, right? I think a lot of people were prepared for three white men in Georgia who are using a similar kind of self-defense argument, even though they were the ones who were armed, they were the ones who went out of their way to pursue and then murder Ahmed Aubrey while he was doing nothing other than going for a run. I think we shouldn't rest too comfortably in the fact that they were rightly convicted. Thank God there's video evidence that the accused and then the convicted themselves had filmed. I mean, you talk about the audacity of white privilege collectively, but then also the injustice of the system itself. The one thing I want to highlight with these two cases side by side is the way in which Rittenhouse, as a 17-year-old white man who killed two people, was in effect infantilized and treated with a lot of kid gloves, whereas oftentimes in, is the case when there's an African-American, a black person who has been killed, such as Trayvon Martin in the case of the Zimmerman trial, or in this case with Ahmed Aubrey, 
what ends up happening is that the victim who is deceased, who was murdered, is the one who's put on trial. And the the defense of oftentimes these white killers is presented in such a way that this person was a problem or this is to help justify a self-defense argument or the like. And I think that itself is also a deeply racialized and racist problem that we experience. And I, I, I'm just very troubled about all of that, because even some of the news coverage and certainly some of the arguments that were made in the Georgia case against these three men who murdered Ahmed Aubrey, we're trying to put Mr. Aubrey on trial after he has been murdered. And to me, that's there's nothing more disgusting than that. Yeah, I just watched both of these trials with so much trepidation and in prayer, both for the families who were involved but also for our country and society as a whole, because it's these decisions sometimes that are serving uh, to trip or to instigate sometimes a very justified reaction on the part of people who are so disgusted with how true justice maybe doesn't happen. So when the guilty verdicts came down in the Aubrey case, I was, you know, sighed a little bit with relief, but remembering that case almost didn't come to trial. And again, if it weren't for videotape that was accidentally released or didn't that they didn't realize would have that effect, they weren't even initially going to be charged. So we we can both be grateful that some justice was done there for the family, but on the other hand, recognize that it was could have gone the other way. The Rittenhouse verdict I've watched very carefully, both because the young man is from the Chicago area and he traveled to my home state, where admittedly things had gotten pretty crazy in the aftermath of another shooting of a black man. And I do, in general, have a different level of empathy for younger defendants, whether they're white or black, recognizing that the teenage brain is not fully formed at that age. On the other hand, What's really concerned and disgusted me, even before the verdict came down, was the level to which this young person has now become this hero in right-wing and specifically white supremacist white-wing circles. So I see on his own social media, this was even before the shooting, but now he's this buddy with all the Proud Boys and has these very right-wing politicians all trying to kind of attach themselves to his rising star. And even like you said, Dan, if the law was not correct or if he was justifiably found not guilty given this law, it seems to me that this is not what we want for this young person in the aftermath of this whole experience is for him to go out and stir up more trouble. I totally agree with everything you've said. And, you know, I can't help but think about uh, the contortions that are oftentimes done by anti-abortion activists who talk about, you know, wanting to end legal abortion. They emphasize that legal abortion, not, you know, recognizing that there's no way you can end abortion, just like there's no way you can end homicide. That can't be just because it's a law doesn't mean it's not going to continue. That emphasis is something that I keep thinking about in the case here of these really distorted self-defense laws that basically are a form of legal murder. And I I would love to see in the spirit of Catholicism and our commitment to being a pro-life community, that those who who want to end the legal right to abortion would want to end the legal right to self-defensive murder. And so I, and people will say, oh, but Thomas Aquinas, or oh, there's a tradition where we can justify self-defense. I go back to the fourth century. St. Augustine did not have the same view as Thomas did, you know, a millennium later. And I think that as Catholics, we need to really ask a question about what role in as as Christian people, as people who, you know, claim to follow the gospel and and to live the what Jesus Christ is calling us to, in, in what case is it better, you know, in what, I don't know, in what case can we justify such sort of violence, even under the auspices of self-defense? And I can't help but remember, you know, what the gospel tells us from Jesus's lips about turning the other cheek, about there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for a friend and so forth. There are nonviolent ways of resisting and of being, of offering a defense. Certainly, I don't think in any kind of way would the Jesus of the gospels, uh, the Jesus who is the incarnate word that we're preparing to celebrate at Christmas, would ever side with Rittenhouse in this, that a 17-year-old you know, would have an assault rifle and kill people with impunity. I, I just feel very strongly about that, and I, and I would hope that those who are very committed to the anti-abortion issue would recognize the injustice here and that we need to change our laws. Well, and I, I just want to pick up on that because 
Catholics have a complicated history in America around vigilantism. And I'm thinking in particular back in the 1950s, Father Charles Coughlin was associated with the Christian Front, which was an organization that was literally raided by the FBI because they had been amassing weapons and explosives, basically, to to try and overthrow the government. And there is this kind of notion of a kind of almost virtuous fascist kind of edge to Catholic organizations sometimes where in the name of doing something that is right, and here I'm scare quoting right, like protecting property or protecting, you know, our neighborhood. And these were the narratives that in the Rittenhouse and in the Arbery cases were ringing out. We felt unsafe with this person here. I felt like I had to protect the property. That can lead to violence. And then the the people raise their hands and say, but I was just trying to do good. But we have to remember that, that Catholic teaching, as you're saying, Dan, is that the ends don't justify the means. If you have a noble end and you end up shooting somebody to get to that noble end, the Catholic Church does not give you a, a, a pass on that. Thou shalt not kill rings out and is very important here. So I'm thinking a lot about not just these as isolated cases, but as cases that kind of speak to a century or more of kind of trenchant history of taking up arms and violence when we fear that virtue is at stake. And one of the things I I worry about, David, and this reflects on what you've just said, is that it will embolden other people towards that kind of vigilantism. So certainly the decision in the Arbery case maybe helps people think twice about that. But again, that's only because there happened to be a video that helped the jury to understand what really happened that night. I think for those of us who maybe regularly go to protests or try to witness in that way, it's concerning that someone can bring a weapon across state lines and with that intention to protest that gotten out of hand or not. And I think this is the kind of fear that people of color live with every day. They can't even go jogging. But it does make me think twice about like the appropriateness of bringing my kids to to protest because people might feel emboldened now by that not guilty decision in the Rittenhouse case. And and just one quick correction. What came out in the trial is apparently Rittenhouse did not carry that weapon across state lines. Rather, he had somebody do a straw purchase and hold it for him there in Wisconsin. So it's even more complex than that. It's almost like a conspiracy to commit violence that nevertheless gets thought about as, well, this is just, you know, par for the course. You know, naturally, we're going to make sure that a 17-year-old who has said that he wants to use violence to protect property is going to get access to a weapon. Like, to me, regardless of how the details played out, those points where a 17-year-old who, as you said, doesn't yet have a fully formed moral conscience or a fully formed higher executive function is going to have access to a weapon, that's problematic. Thanks for that correction, David. And I think there's also something to be said about the the crossing state lines. It's interesting. Having lived in Chicago for many years, it was the it's like, you know, the punching bag, the whipping boy, as it were, of the sort of alt-right and and very sort of libertarian gun defenders, Second Amendment defenders, who say, well, you have all these strict laws in Chicago and look at how much gun violence there is. Well, this is case in point. If a 17-year-old could have access, you know, yeah, he physically crossed state lines. There was an AR-15 style weapon waiting for him, which was his, quote unquote, that his friend was holding in his friend's dad's cabinet. He could have easily taken that gun, put it in his car and driven down to Chicago, which is not even an hour away. And so I, I think this also should draw our attention to the need for federal gun laws and universal background checks, these sorts of things. I happened, I mentioned at at our opening conversation that I was in Texas for the last week before Thanksgiving for this academic conference. And I was very curious because these trials were underway. I'm like, what would it take for me in Texas, who is not a felon, how long would it take for me if I wanted to buy a gun, which obviously I wouldn't and I didn't. But I was curious and I looked up online. It took me about five minutes of looking through a couple, you know, web pages to learn that basically nothing prevented me from that day. There's no wait period. There's no extensive background check. I could go and go buy a gun immediately. And I think at the time I didn't think, oh, this is so cool. Texas is awesome. My thought was like, this is very scary. This is very disturbing. I should not be able to do that, especially who knows I'm not speaking for myself personally, but individuals who may be impulsive or who may be under duress or who may be angry or who may be unwell, whatever the circumstances are, you know, there's no mechanism to really screen that out or very, very 
little resistance, I should say. So um, again, I think that these cases highlight the real gun issue that we still have. And it's also weird to me, I'll just say maybe as, as a last note of the absurdity of everything here, is that the trial revealed that because Rittenhouse was underage, his friend or his friend's father procured this assault rifle for him. And he had it because he was far too young still to have a pistol, that if he had a pistol at that scene, that itself would have been perhaps a felony or a misdemeanor. And I I just can't wrap my head around some of the illogic of firearm policy in the state of Wisconsin, particularly in this instance, but across the U.S. more broadly. And it almost has been engineered to be that way at every legal level. What constitutes a firearm, as you've just said, who's allowed to own a firearm when, you know, what makes something a better choice, even though it's lethal force no matter what. Unfortunately, I'm certain that we're going to come back to this sort of subject again in later episodes. But for now, we're going to need to leave the conversation here. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran. I'm here with David Dolt and Heidi Schlumpf. As you know, every couple of weeks we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. When the U.S. bishops met in Baltimore for their annual fall assembly in mid-November, the agenda item that most media and regular Catholics alike were watching involved a communion document that had originally began as an attempt by some bishops to deny communion to pro-choice politicians, specifically our second Catholic president, Joe Biden. But in the end, the year-long debate ended with a whimper. The document passed by a vote of 222 to 8, with three abstentions after very little debate. The final version of the document made no explicit reference to Catholic politicians who support abortion rights, though it did contain a line about lay people who exercise public authority having, quote, a special responsibility to form their consciences in accord with the church's faith and the moral law and to serve the human family but by upholding human life and dignity, end quote. In other agenda items, the bishops also advanced the process towards sainthood for three lay individuals, approved some liturgical translations, and voted to add St. Teresa of Calcutta to the liturgical calendar. The bishops also approved new socially responsible investment guidelines, which call for no investments in companies directly involved in abortion, euthanasia, assisted suicide, in vitro fertilization, contraceptives, embryonic stem cell, and fatal tissue research that ends the life of a child in the womb, pornography, sexual exploitation, or sex reassignment surgery. Although, quote, saving our common global home, end quote, is one of the five categories in the investment guidelines, the policy does not call for divestment of all fossil fuel companies. That recommendation, however, was added in a footnote after a suggestion by Bishop Robert McElroy of San Diego. Finally, the bishops announced and approved plans for a three-year Eucharistic revival that will culminate in a National Eucharistic Congress in Indianapolis in the summer of 2024, The project, which has a $28 million price tag, is aimed at increasing Catholics' understanding of what the Eucharist really means. Bishop Andrew Cousins, chair of the Bishop's Committee on Evangelization, who presented the proposal to his fellow bishops, said the project could help bring people back to the practice of their faith. He was especially enthusiastic about the Congress event, which he expects to attract 80,000 to 100,000 people. Heidi, you watched the entire meeting as well as the press conferences. What is your takeaway about it all? Well, let's just say it was not the um, fireworks that maybe some media who were attending were expecting. There certainly was a lot more conflict going on outside the hotel ballroom where we had protesters from both the left and the right talking about this document and other issues. But in the end, there was so little discussion. I I thought for a second that I missed it. I think there was more discussion about St. Teresa of Calcutta being put on the liturgical calendar than there was about this document. Now, what happened, of course, was that most of the discussion happened behind closed doors. So at this bishop's meeting, they had quite a bit more executive session where the bishops just meet amongst themselves without staff or media there. So normally at a bishop's meeting, they meet an executive session on the last day for a half of a day. This year, they met all day Monday in executive session, which also included Eucharistic adoration and prayer. 
And then they had some executive session on Tuesday as well as on Wednesday. So that may be a sign of how things might be done in the future in that you could see this positively maybe as a way of them getting on the same page before they present their public face. On the other hand, there just was not a lot of enthusiasm about this document by the time it all came to the end. I think a lot of the bishops just wanted this whole controversy that had been happening for over a year to quietly go away. And it looks like that might be what happens. Now, a couple people claimed victory in its passing, and I think it's uh, telling that you have both sides. So some people who really wanted this document to more as a reason to address Catholic politicians were still claiming victory in the sense that it did have that statement in it that still allows, I think, for a local ordinary to attempt to deny communion to a pro-choice politician. Of course, that existed before this statement as well. And then on the other hand, you had Catholics for Free Choice claiming victory as well and saying, well, this document did not contain as explicit a directive against Joe Biden personally or against politicians, and they were taking credit for that as they were part of the protest against it. The most interesting little postscript, if you will, came from a question from our news editor, Joshua McElwee. He asked in the final press conference whether this was going to be sent to Rome for approval, as any teaching document that comes out of a bishop's conference uh, must. And the answer was that they were not planning to send this to Rome for that level of approval. Now, many people think it had been written specifically with the idea in mind what could get through not only the vote by the U.S. bishops, but also the approval process from Rome. So the decision not to send it to Rome for this approval seems very odd and reveals, I think, the truth behind it, which is that it was a failed project. Why spend all this time and effort on a document that's not even going to go for approval to be an official teaching document? That said, the rest of the meeting was pretty anticlimactic with, you know, liturgical translations being discussed and occasional things. But that Eucharistic revival did catch my attention, not only because there was an attempt after the fact to say that the communion document was kind of part of this project all along, which I think there's too much evidence showing that it really came out of the working group formed after the election of Biden. But just to finally see the details about this revival, and especially of the Congress, the big event that coincidentally or not, is going to happen that very summer that we'll be having Republican and Democratic conventions and perhaps in the midst of another contentious presidential election. So I'm curious to see what your reactions are to, whether to the document, to that revival, or to anything else you saw at the bishop's meeting. Well, this is exactly my question, and I I want to honestly ask this to both of you as Heidi, in your role as a close watcher of this event with the bishops, and Dan, you as a Catholic priest, what do the bishops want me to feel as a layperson? Like, coming out of this, what is their hope for my reaction to the Eucharistic revival, for example? Like, what are they hoping that I will feel as a result of this or do as a result of this? Because I'll be honest, I'm incredibly confused. (laughs) Yeah, I'll take a stab at this. I think a generous reading is that a fair number of these bishops want you to adopt their own experience of piety and devotion. I think a lot of these men are good people, and I think they truly love and are drawn. It's part of myself included. I have a tremendous love for the Eucharist. I'm a Catholic priest. It's it's the name of the game. I wouldn't be doing this. I wouldn't be who I am if I didn't. And yet, I think there's a very narrowly conceived understanding of what it means to have a deep appreciation for the sacramental presence of Christ in the Eucharist, what a Eucharistic devotion or prayer life looks like, what the purpose of the Sunday celebration of the Eucharist, the Mass, is, and what the roles of the whole assembly and the presider and all the ministers are within that. And I think that was something that we discussed in a previous episode around Kevin Irwin's really stellar analysis of a leaked draft, which was a very antiquated, theologically anyways, understanding of sacramental theology and the theology of the Eucharist. It just wasn't reflective of what the Church actually believes. And I think what I would say is, and I don't mean this maliciously, and I don't think the bishops do either, I think some of them have a very 
pre-conciliar understanding of a- Eucharistic adoration and, and a sense of piety that I think they want you to have an appreciation for and a love of yourself. In and of itself, I don't think that's a problem, but it's not really what the Eucharist is about. <laughs> and I think that's what's really makes me a little bit hesitant about what the kind of tenor of this Eucharistic Congress is going to be, even if they all the bishops play nice and, and are on their best behavior and don't turn it overtly political, if they've learned anything from this process, maybe that will be avoided in 2023. And yet, I still think that what we really need is a, a deeper understanding of Sacrosanctum Concilium. The Eucharist is the source and summit of our life. The fact that it calls us to action, that it is not a reward for the pure, but it is uh, a food for the journey, as the great doctors of the church and saints have said, and that Sacrosanctum Concilium alludes to. The fact that all people are called to active, full participation in the celebration of the Eucharist, that it's not a passive, pietistical observation from afar, and that there's more than affectation, there's more than emotion tied to Eucharistic devotion, and that it's about examination of conscience, it's about all sorts of things. So that's my sense, is that generously put, I think they want you, David, and you as the kind of a metonym for lay Catholics writ large, want you to have their preconciliar pietistic devotion to the Eucharist as they experience it themselves. And here's my reaction to that, and I appreciate you you laying that out. Two decades ago, more, I worked for a company down in Atlanta, and it was a company that had a small staff. We worked very intensely. It was a shipping company, so we were constantly on the move. And there were some very real kind of issues that were needing to be attended to, physical health, mental health of the crew, all these sorts of things. But I have a memory of being drawn into this meeting, this multi-day meeting, where the head of the company gave us all books that were motivational books, and we're like, we're going to have a conversation about how to make our work better. And all of us looked at each other from the loading dock and we're like, this is not actually going to be a conversation about the things that would make our lives better. This is a conversation to make you feel better. And I look at the world and I see things that I would wish that the Catholic bishops would be actually speaking about and taking up at a meeting and would actually be spending $28 million on. And I'll tell you, it's not Eucharistic revival. It's not. There are other things I would rather have happen. So I'm feeling like this is a bit of a a bait and switch for the laity or like, look over here so you don't look over here. Yeah, I happen to agree with you, David, about that, that while I also have a strong devotion to the Eucharist, it may not match the that pre-Vatican II piety that is going to be promoted with this revival. And my other concern is that this kind of event also is a little bit more about the idea of triumphal Catholicism. So this idea that we could get huge numbers of people, 100,000 people in this stadium taking over this city and somehow providing a vision not only to the world, but then internally to each other, like, we're still here, we're still powerful or growing. There were a lot of comparisons that this event could be something similar to a World Youth Day, that it could be something similar to the youth ministry event that's held regularly in Indianapolis. In fact, I believe the city was chosen partially because of that that it was even similar to like a papal trip. So I get that as a, you know, a PR or events planner could tell you that there's something to be said for even just you know, going on retreat. There there builds some community there. But again, it does seem to be sort of a let's regain all those positive feelings without having to do the listening or the hard conversations with Catholics who might not be quick to just jump on board and buy a ticket to this. So it's not a coincidence to me that this would be going on at the same time that the whole universal church is turning to the synod on synodality and that we're going to be trying to listen to people from the bottom up rather than here at the top, we're going to tell you what you need. It's a Eucharistic revival. We're going to spend a ton of money on it to, to make a big splashy event. So again, I don't wish that the event is not successful. And I think there are a lot of people who for whom that kind of event could be very meaningful. And I, I hope that it is. But if it's done instead of some of these other things, like a true commitment to the synodality process that calls for listening, not just to the people who are already here, but to the people 
who might be on the margins, I think that would be a misstep on the part of the bishops. And I'm so glad that you said that because, again, this kind of distraction narrative that I'm suspicious of, I, I, my takeaway was very much in line with that. We, the Conference of Bishops, have been asked to actually listen to the laity. We're scared to death to do that, and therefore we are going to create this other distracting kind of thing, and we're going to spend money, and we're going to point our attention towards that so that we don't actually have to take the time to listen because we already know what we want the laity to say. Now, I'm a cynic, <laughs> and so I apologize to listeners. You know, I've been around organizations, and I, I also love the Eucharist. I also love being Catholic, but I'm very fed up in some ways with the bishops right now in terms of there are really lives at stake. There are really people who need the kind of pastoral ear that a bishop should have. There are people who are being told that they literally don't exist, and they are living lives of desperation. These need to be attended to, and we're not attending to them. Instead, we're saying, you, you simply aren't kneeling enough. And I'm. this is my cynical take, and I appreciate very much the notion of the Eucharist and the love of the Eucharist, and I don't want to disparage that. But also, I'm just, I think I'm wearing thin on my patience with the bishops at this point. Well, and once again, this whole process is partially based on a survey that the bishops have taken very seriously. Again, a a survey that many have mentioned, many people who do surveys for a living have mentioned is problematic and does not fit with previous surveys on the same issue in terms of finding huge numbers of Catholics not understanding traditional theology or not even traditional theology, as you've mentioned before, Father Dan, about the Eucharist. And it's just ironic because there have been so many surveys over the decades that have showed things that Catholics have concerns about. And I've never seen the bishops jump so quickly to cite a survey so frequently as a justification for what they do. Now, I think it's human nature to res- you know to use surveys and data that resonates with your own experience or your preconceived ideas and so that's what's happening here but again do we need more catechesis and would it be great if we could instill more love of the eucharist again not just a preconciliar theological love of the eucharist sure but i think if you were to ask us catholics and specifically young catholics that they hope this is going to reach what their biggest issues are or what their biggest passions or concerns are i'm not sure eucharist would be number 1 or even in the top 3 well we know it's not and and the reason we know that is because again the document i cite all the time the spring 2018 pre-synodal document that was written by at the insistence of the holy father the 300 representative young adults from around the globe who came and spoke about the things that were of most concern to them they don't and Heidi I'm so glad you always bring up and rightly so that Pew survey that was so faulty and we've talked about it ad nauseum on this podcast that the way that it was framed was misleading and the results there are inconclusive and yet the fact that the bishops keep using this it, it is weird it's a weird cart you know before the horse sort of thing or the tail wagging the dog i would love to see the bishops have a kind of synodal process or like an Aquentro-like gathering that focused on young adults and see what they actually have to say. Young adults understand what the Eucharist is. Despite the, the, the mistakes of that one survey and its wording and its, and its conclusions, or rather the interpretations that people have taken from that, things like inequality among gender, things like income inequality and poverty in the world, things like the refusal of those currently in church leadership and ministry to take seriously young adults and their baptismal right and vocation to be ministers and leaders in the church. Those are the things that young people care about. And we can go deeper. If we want to talk about taking surveys seriously, as you were saying, Heidi, I think young adult Catholics are very concerned about hypocrisy among the church leadership. I think they're very concerned about the fact that there is overt discrimination. And maybe the last thing I'll say about this is I was at first very excited to hear the bishop take a stand in investment guidelines for dioceses and and Catholic institutions. But then when I saw the parade of issues, it was their hobby horse issues yet again. No concern for global climate change, no concern about fossil fuel. There was nothing about weapons manufacturing in this regard. It was euthanasia, it was abortion, it was culture warrior issues yet again, and and issues that were anti-LGBTQ. And and I think that kind of stuff is going to continue to turn away more and more people from the church. Yeah, the guidelines did mention weapons 
uh, I believe. Oh, my and, apologies. And also, Thank you for that. And, yeah. and also they did, at the request of Bishop McElroy, did include some mention of fossil fuels, but in a footnote, not in the main portion. Instead, it's a laundry list of all the sexuality issues as usual. I just want to back up and say, I don't doubt that if tens of thousands of Catholics get together and pray together in the summer of 2024, I don't doubt that won't be a powerful experience. It always is. And I think there's a reason young people sometimes are drawn towards some spiritual practices like adoration, because much like, you know, meditation and other spiritual traditions, and especially in our time of such craziness and a technology, centering yourself and paying attention to your own deeper thoughts and trying to connect with the divine and to do that in a huge group of like-minded people can be a powerful experience. I just wish it wasn't being done in such a way that seems dismissive of all those other people and that a little bit of a, a varnish of uh, the polarization issues that this is going to be for people with more traditionalist spiritualities and not as much for people who have concerns about justice issues, the other ones that you mentioned, Dan. Well, as these preparations for the Eucharistic Revival Conference and the repercussions of the Bishop's Conference continue to play out. We'll be here to talk about them, but for now we're going to leave the conversation at this point. You're listening to The Francis Effect. We'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here today with Dan Horan and David Dalt. Every couple of weeks, we get together and discuss news and events from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. As we enter the cold and flu season here in the United States, we're nowhere near being back to normal with regard to COVID-19. Despite the recent approval for vaccinations for children ages 5 to 11, and increased efforts from the Biden administration to encourage adult vaccination and precautionary social distancing, the infection and hospitalization levels in many areas of the country remain alarmingly high. And as tenuous as things are here in the U.S., they're even worse in many other parts of the world. In the past few days, World health officials have begun issuing warnings and information about a new variant of COVID-19 known as the Omicron variant. Scientists are not certain where the variant originated, but the mutations of the virus were first identified by scientists in South Africa, and the World Health Organization deemed it a, quote, variant of concern, end quote, given its already rapid spread. This was the same designation given to the Delta variant when it emerged several months back. Many aspects of the variant remain unknown at this time, and senior health officials in the U.S. have cautioned against panic, even as the federal government announced a new wave of travel bans over this past weekend. Despite those bans, we now have confirmed reports that Omicron cases have de been detected not only in Africa, but also in Asia. Europe, and here in North America. David, what should we be thinking about these new recent developments? Well, the first thing is that we're seeing the fruits of a lack of actual response at national levels to containment of the virus. So if you allow for major portions of the population to go unvaccinated, either because you're allowing them to simply say, I won't do it, or because you have broken supply chains and not allowed for the stocks of vaccinations to get to them, or you have withheld the patents so that they can create the, the, the vaccinations themselves where they are, 
all of these are going to be factors that lead to the possibility of mutation. And right now what we're doing is we're jumping through the Greek alphabet. And so Delta is a letter that's much earlier than Omicron. The ones in between are not the real ones to be worried about, but occasionally we're getting these mutations that pop up and and cause real problems because they can break through or they can get around or they're more infectious than or they have a, a, a higher lethality rate. All of these things are things that epidemiologists, global health experts will tell us are predictable outcomes of the kind of ramshackle policy that we've had both here in the United States and that we as a global leader have allowed to happen worldwide. So I'm very frustrated at this point about the fact that we're dealing with yet another variant. And in fact, my daughter this morning, she heard on the radio about the Omicron variant and she said, there's another variant. And I was like, yeah, there is. And we're doing the best that we can to try and do our part to keep our family safe and to keep others safe around us. But when the leaders fail to lead, this is the inevitable result. And again, I'm being very cynical, but that's, I'm at my wits end with a lot of these things this week because it just doesn't make any sense to me why we're back here again, other than we have the interests of capital and national bigotries to blame. Yeah, you echo exactly my feelings, David. I I almost have nothing else to say (laughs) for once. It's just, it is perplexing. And again, it's a failure to accept basic science. The more people who are vaccinated, the less opportunity there is for the virus to mutate. It it mutates when it spreads. And I've been fortunate enough, I, I was boosted a couple of weeks ago. You know, I wear a mask in, in, in settings where that's most appropriate. You know, I've, I've traveled internationally quite a bit since since being vaccinated originally earlier in the spring. And I've been tested on occasion, mostly through those international travel experiences or in other settings. And I fully expect, given how prevalent the virus is, and especially with the Delta variant being so infectious, that there's I'm not deluded. I, I could experience a breakthrough case that happens all the time. But I've been, you know, knock on wood, very luckily not to have. And what that tells me is that if you follow the science, you follow the guidance and you play it safe, then you don't have to be as concerned. So I think for those of us who are vaccinated, who are wearing masks, who are maintaining social distance, who are doing the basic, just minimal things necessary to be safe, I think we have very little to be concerned about. But to your point, David, it's a kind of a meta concern at this point, which is until again, a a significantly greater number of the population receives the vaccine and decreases the ability of the virus to spread and mutate. We're going to keep facing this again and again. I saw some weird kind of alt-right tweet. I don't even know how it popped up in my feed where somebody was talking about, you know, basically making fun of the fact that we'll have to have additional boosters and stuff as this goes on. And and the kind of implication was, well, then we shouldn't bother with this at all because the vaccines aren't helping this sort of thing. That's complete nonsense. The vaccines are helping tremendously. Just more people need to do it. So I'm also proud to say that I got boosted last week and and I'm Ask the pharmacist who was unaware whether the booster is planned for the kids who are able to get it, the sort of 12 through 17-year-olds, because my kids are coming up on their six months with the vaccine. So again, it just becomes another health safety thing that we need to do. And for now, I had already... we. I've been wearing masks all along and I'm not anxious to not be wearing masks, especially as the weather changes and we know that all transmittable diseases go up during that time. But what strikes me about this new variant is the reminder of what an international and global thing this is. Viruses don't stop at borders. And I think we've been especially poor at the global response to the virus. And there are too many people around the world who, even if they wanted to get the vaccine, do not have access to it. Here in the United States, people have the luxury, the privilege to refuse or otherwise not take the vaccine based on their various uh, beliefs or positions. Too many people around the world don't have that choice. I know There's a lot of praise being given to the scientists in South Africa where this was first detected for how quickly they shared information. And it's that kind of global communication and cooperation that's needed. I'll just add on a quick personal note over the Thanksgiving break, I visited with a friend from high school for hours. We were catching up. We had not gotten together for so many years. And she's currently battling cancer. And really, her whole life is determined by 
whether the people around her are vaccinated or not, or whether mask mandates are still in effect. She cannot go to church because it's not, there are no longer mask mandates for that in Wisconsin where she lives. And so just a reminder to people that even when you're considering your own vaccination or booster plans, to remember that you're not just doing it for yourself and your own individual family or family of origin or people that you're around daily, but there are so many people out there who are already fighting such a difficult fight with health battles that you help protect when you get vaccinated. And we spent the last segment talking about the bishop's call to a Eucharistic revival. I will say as a Catholic, this is where I wish that Eucharistic revival would take hold, because if we really truly are one bread, one body with one Lord of all, it's not that we're all going up and getting our individual prize from the priest. Instead, we are knit together in common care for one another. We're knit together in your hardship, as you just said. The hardship of your friend who is immunocompromised is also my hardship, and I have a responsibility to your friend, not just to my health, but to her health. This is the way that I wish that we thought about the Eucharist. This is the way that I wish that we thought about the Mass. This is the way that I wish we thought about the the whole of being Catholic, is that we are here to take care of the vulnerable. We are here to serve the vulnerable. Our goods are for the vulnerable. And, you know, our job is to make sure that these things that are good get to the people that need them. This is the kind of Catholicism that I wish was being shouted from every cathedral. I see the Holy Father saying things like this, like he's calling out the arms makers and he's calling calling out others and saying, you must stop. But I don't see that from the bishops. And I wish that was the Eucharistic revival that we were talking about, because to me, that's the only revival worth talking about. Great connection there, David. And of course, that is the Catholicism that we have. But like you said, it's not the one that's always presented to the wider culture. We need to do a better job of communicating that. Yeah, I don't, again, I I find myself with um, a lack of anything else to add. You know, maybe that's all there is to say on this topic. (laughs) Well, the one thing that I would just add is the notion that somehow because South Africa had the medical acumen to be able to identify the virus, that somehow now it's being charged as the South African virus and that it's somehow their fault and that we need to cordon them off and quarantine them. We know for for a fact, even though we're still growing in what we know about the Omicron variant, and we don't know all of its effects, we don't know all of its dangers. One of the things that we do know is that the people who are carrying it currently are not just people from South Africa. And the reason why South Africa had the means to identify it is because of the denials during the HIV epidemic of access to care and to retroviral vaccines, they have had to build a very robust medical infrastructure basically from the ground up there. And it's poised to, to be deployed at moments like this when we have pandemics. And because they were able to identify it, now the bigotry is kicking back in and saying, oh, those countries where people are dirty or those countries where people are unable to take care of themselves, we need to make sure that those kind of people don't come to our pristine, clean nation. And we need to take a really good look in the mirror because, again, our inability to share, our inability to actually create situations where the vulnerable of all nations can be cared for, that really, I mean, yeah, our bigotry is showing and it's a problem. Well, I think the only thing to think about going forward, too, is just as we learn more about Omicron and see how much of a threat it really is here in the United States, uh, a lot of our policies from both uh, the wider culture, but also in church in, and church-run organizations will have to be looked at again. And I was already expecting, again, because of the winter weather and more people being indoors, that we might have to think about being a little more cautious. I know our family has always prioritized, like, what level of risk are we willing to take? What things are worth taking risk and what aren't? And as we get, we're grateful to spend the holidays with family and hoping to spend Christmas with family and do some traveling ourselves. We're really hoping and praying that with some smart, not overly oppressive measures being taken by large numbers of people, then, then we can not be forced into a serious lockdown again. My daughter has already been told at her school to carry all of her books home every night. 
just in case she's not coming back the next day because they've had so many classes had to quarantine, especially in the younger grades where the uh, the large number of students are not yet all vaccinated. So I'm a little nervous as we head into this winter weather again, but it'll give me something to um, meditate and pray about this Advent that that hopefully we can nip this one in the bud. Well, Advent is a season of waiting and expectation. And as Listeners, you are heading into this moment of unknowingness. Just know that you are in our thoughts and in our prayers, and we hope that you are staying healthy and that you are able to focus on the joy of this season rather than uh, some of the scary things that are still out there. There's a lot that's still not known about these variants, and there's a lot that is still out of our control, but luckily we do profess that there is one that loved us so much that he even went to the cross to set these things right. So let's focus towards that as we are preparing for the season. And Dan, I pray you all the O antiphons you can handle. And Heidi, (laughs) I pray for great Advent preparations for you and your family. And I'm just so glad to be back with the two of you today. Thanks, David. Thanks, Heidi. Amen. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for listening, friends. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show was made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.